Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are sharing one more talk from our Theopolitan Ministry Conference that occurred last week. And here we have Dr. Alistair Roberts speaking on the politics of love. And you can look for all of the lectures given at this year's conference to hit the Theopolis app later this week. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here's Alistair Roberts discussing love and politics. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beautiful and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. David's reaction to the death, the news of the death of Saul and Jonathan may surprise some readers of 1 Samuel, in which Saul mercilessly pursues David and seeks his life. And rather than rejoicing at Saul's comeuppance or expressing relief at the removal of his adversary, David pours out his heart in lament over the loss of Israel's king. Within David's expression of distress over the death of Saul and Jonathan, some profound yet underappreciated truths about the character of political leadership is exposed. David's song of lament is entitled, The Song of the Bow, in verse 18. It suggests a particular emphasis upon the death of Jonathan, who is associated with the bow as a weapon both within the song in verse 22 and within the narrative of Samuel more broadly in chapter 20, for instance, when he shoots, fires the arrows. Indeed, as we look at the song more closely, this accent upon lamenting the death of Jonathan can be borne out in its structure and content. Peter has noted that verses 19 to 25 of the song form a chiasm. It would begin with glory, beauty, and the gazelle that's slain and the mighty that have fallen in verse 19, which mirrors with the end in verse 25, the mighty being fallen and Jonathan slain on the heights. Next, the daughters of Philistia not rejoicing and no offerings to Dagon. And then in verse 24, daughters of Israel weep and the contrast to the Philistine women. And then in the center, the fallen shield and the bow and the sword in life. And the parallel between verses 19 and 25 might suggest that Jonathan is the glory. 
the beauty or the gazelle of Israel that David speaks of as slain upon the high places. He's the fleet-footed warrior, like Asahel in the chapter that follows. The swift gazelle leaping and skipping in the mountains is a romantic image that we find for the beloved in the Song of Solomon. The voice of my beloved, lo, look, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. The image of the gazelle reappears in chapter 2, verse 17, and also in the concluding lines of the song, the song of Songs. Jonathan is Israel's gazelle, the beloved of the people and their glory. His death robs Israel of a bridegroom and favorite son. And David is concerned that the deaths of Saul and Jonathan will be cause for rejoicing among their enemies. He calls upon the land itself to mourn with him over the fallen Saul and Jonathan. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor bounteous fields. There's a sympathy between the land and the king. Saul and Jonathan are like strong lions and swift eagles. They were like jewels crowning its mountains. The weapons of Saul and Jonathan, the bow, the sword, and the shield, metonomically relate to Saul and Jonathan themselves. Jonathan is the bow and Saul is the sword and the fallen anointed shield in verses 21 and 22. And David's song concludes with the declaration that the weapons of war perished. Lightheart observes, the Lord's anointed king is the shield for his people. Jonathan and Saul not only had weapons, but were weapons. But now they lie unused and useless on the heights of Gilboa. Sacrificial themes also play beneath the surface of the song. Jonathan and Saul offer up blood and fat, and they are slain on the high places. Gilboa is called upon not to provide fields of offering. Throughout the song, David refers to Saul and Jonathan in a way that presents them as romantic figures. Their physicality, their virility are prominent throughout. They are described as possessing the strength and speed of majestic animals, identified with the action of their weapons, and described as beloved and pleasant. While David wishes that the daughters of Philistia would not rejoice at Saul and Jonathan's demise, he calls upon the daughters of Israel to weep over Saul. Saul is like a father and or a bridegroom for the daughters of Israel who dresses them in the finest apparel. And the song does not end with the conclusion of this chiasm. David's personal grief at the death of his friend Jonathan overflows into a heart-wrenching declaration of the love between them. Jonathan, although about 30 years David's senior and the crown prince of Israel, had symbolically handed over his status to David in chapter 18. He'd been loyal to David to the point of risking his life and had saved David from death. Jonathan's love for David was remarkable. He had demonstrated a devotion to David far beyond any woman. David's song reveals some of the deeper depths and dynamics of political leadership. The leadership described in this song is romantic and erotic. The relationship between the king and his son and their people is shot through with love and desire. Israel's beloved gazelle, Jonathan, has perished on the high places, and her daughters mourn the loss of the king who dressed them for marriage. A land filled with the burgeoning life of awakened love 
now falls into the barrenness of mourning. Romantic and erotic themes are present throughout the narrative of Samuel and the early kingdom. Leaders are noted for their arresting physical appearance and by the desire and the love that they provoke in the people. Saul is head and shoulders above all of the people. He's more handsome than any other in Israel, as we see in 1 Samuel 9 verse 2. David is ruddy, bright-eyed, and good-looking. Solomon's physical appearance is a prominent theme within his song. The king, then, is the lover, the bridegroom, the husband of his people. And this is a theme, of course, powerfully illustrated in the Song of Solomon. Around these figures cluster all the ingredients of grand romance, tales of daring-do, the composition and playing of music. David is the sweet singer of Israel, a fecundity of poetic imagery and the affection and the attention of young women. It's a land entering the springtime of its history. The kingdom is the period where everything is growing and flourishing. This is the golden age of Israel. David and Solomon are the archetypal kings, not merely on account of military might or prowess, but because they are the great lovers of Israel. David's story is one of power gained through the winning of people's love. Saul loved him in chapter 16. Jonathan loved him in chapter 18. The women of Israel loved him and sang concerning him in chapter 18, verses 6 to 7. Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. All of Israel and Judah loved him. David, whose name itself means beloved, is loved by God and expresses a deep love in return. As Augustine once observed, it's the lover who sings, and David is the sweet singer of Israel. He's the lover. He's the one in whom Israel's devotion to the Lord bursts forth in the loving joy of song. And David recognizes in his Psalms that the foundation of the kingdom is found in the Lord's love for him, the Lord's steadfast love for David. The Lord lovingly and graciously chose David to be the shepherd of his people. While the book of Deuteronomy charges Israel to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, it is not really until the figure of David that we see an Israelite who exemplifies such love for the Lord. The fulfillment of Deuteronomy is in many ways seen in the Psalms. And as we read the Psalms, we see what it means for the Lord to dwell in the heart, not just in wisdom, in the mind and understanding, but the Lord to have taken residence in the heart, memorized, meditated upon, conscripting the desires and the emotions and expressed in beautiful, joyful expressions that move others to join in. The friendship between David and Jonathan reflects David's gaining of power through love. The story of their love begins with the young David being taken from his father's house and brought into the house of Saul, much as a bride might be. And as Jonathan initiates a covenant with him, we see this also in action. David's attractive appearance, his ruddy, bright-eyed nature, is not the arresting masculinity of Saul's great stature and physique. Saul is the giant of Israel, the opposite number of Goliath, and we see him taking on the character of Goliath, the man with the spear, in the chapters that follow Goliath's defeat. But David's physique is more of a, a feminine, a softer masculinity. However, after stripping himself of the garments 
that displayed his royal masculine status and giving them to David, Jonathan, who formerly distinguished himself as a man on the battlefield, stays at home, is paralleled with Michael, is cast more as a mama's boy by his father, and becomes more dependent upon David in emotional and material ways. Meanwhile, the text masculinizes David, who goes out and fights in the most virile fashion, taking the foreskins of his enemies, among other things. Yaron Peleg observes that the literary portrayal of David and Jonathan's relationship in gendered imagery serves the purpose of highlighting the political reversal, whereby David is established as the husband and father for the nation in Jonathan's stead. Within David's Song of Lament, we witness the romance and the eros of political leadership. The romantic political lament is not without modern parallel. You might think of Jackie Kennedy's appropriation of the line from the musical, don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. That describes one such tragic modern political romance in a manner redolent of David's lament. Though it often evades our analysis, contemporary politics is suffused with such eros and romance. The countless dollars expended upon political advertising and the careful cultivation of image are designed not principally to inform the public, but to evoke their love and desire. We vote for our leaders not merely for their policies and their competence, but also for their charm, their charisma, their personal magnetism, their likability, their relatability, their virility, their attractiveness, and other such factors. We attend to their physicality, to their personal presence, and to their image. Incumbencies can play out like love affairs. We talk about a honeymoon period at the beginning of a presidential office, term of office, and that can be followed by a cooling of affections. The book of Samuel's unembarrassed treatment of the dimensions of romance and eros in its account of political rule may easily provoke our enlightened judgment. We're leery of, uh, leery of the superficiality of image-based politics. We might appeal to the Lord's example of looking beyond the outward appearance in his choice of David, searching for virtues such as economic prudence, political intelligence, and the like in our leaders. Yet the rest of the book of Samuel suggests that in choosing a leader, although the, the Lord looked beyond the outward appearance, he was looking for a fitting lover for his people. And even though the appearance and personality of the leader wasn't sufficient to fit them for rule, they weren't unimportant either. Perhaps in our pretensions to a rationality that exceeds the eros of politics, we leave ourselves unprepared to reckon with its necessary presence and hence, we're more vulnerable to its vicissitudes. Reflection upon the erotic politics revealed in books such as Samuel or the Song of Songs may prove salutary, alerting us to its continuing power and importance in our own day. Popular conceptions of authority tend to focus upon the authority that persons can have over others, their capacity to tell other people what they have to do. Indeed, the paradigm case of authority can often be regarded as the situation in which an unwilling party can be compelled to or prevented from action. Authority, it is supposed, it is supposed chiefly resides in veiled threat and the capacity of authorities to exercise compelling force. And without denying the occasional necessity of force or compulsion in the exercise of authority, 
The biblical vision does not actually foreground this. The bare capacity effectively to exercise compelling force, of course, is not itself legitimizing. It must be grounded in right. And such right cannot be understood apart from love. For instance, political concepts such as the consent of the governed are attempts, limited as they may be, to articulate one of the aspects or the facets of this reality of love as the ground of true politics. Now, when we talk about politics of love, people can often hear that, oh, oh, you're not talking about real politics then. Real politics is not about love. My point here is that real politics, deep down at its base level, is about love. And if we want to understand politics, we need to understand love. The relationship between the good ruler and the good people is to be one of love, carefully sustained and pursued and nurtured on both sides. The biblical analogy between the child-parent relationship and the relationship between us and those with authority over us is an important one to consider here. Good parents will often act against their children's wills. Yet we know that parental authority, while it can legitimate and be partly manifested in certain acts of force and compulsion, is not grounded in such force. Rather, the grounds of parental authority are found in the bond of love that naturally exists and which is fitting between parents and their children. That parents love their children and that children honor their parents. Where such love is absent, the relationship breaks down and authority fails. When you see a parent and their child estranged, there is a failure of love at the heart of that in almost every single case. Parental authority is not grounded so much in the effective force that parents can exercise over their children, but in the authority that they should have with their children on account of the natural bond of love between them. A loving authority that should be pursued, practiced, and fostered on both sides. Those occasions when parents exercise force over their children are legitimate to the extent that they represent the child's actual good pursued in a loving and wise manner. The authority of parents is recognized chiefly in the typical signs of legitimate authority, signs that may not always be immediately visible, but which should always be pursued and demonstrated. Where parents never demonstrate their love for their children and their genuine concern for their children's good, their authority will become false and ineffective. Where parents' tyrannical authority is not actually effective authority. And in the stories of both Saul and David, we see the political effects of the abandonment or the betrayal of love. One chief example of this is seen in Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 22, David is fleeing from Saul and it provides the context for what we read in verse 6 and following. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? 
No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Saul is surrounded by his servants and he speaks to them as people of Benjamin. Saul's court clearly isn't a place of equal opportunity for Israelites. Rather, it's filled with his relatives and fellow Benjaminites. This can be typical of monarchies and governments in very tribal societies. The the king is seldom merely an individual impartially ruling the whole people, but represents a ruling tribe that is particularly enriched by the reign and the realm. His family, friends, relatives, and tribesmen will receive cushy sinecures and be privileged in many ways. Saul appeals to the self-interest of those surrounding him. Will David privilege you in this way? Will he give you all these fields and vineyards? He makes clear that they have been greatly advantaged by his favoritism and nepotism, but they wouldn't enjoy such privileges under a Davidic monarchy. And his question to his followers, here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Should recall one of Samuel's warnings concerning the king in chapter 8, verses 14 to 15. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give them to his officers and to his servants. Once again, 1 Samuel is revealing dynamics of the operations of power that we should all recognize. How government can rest upon cynical self-interest, cynical self-love over the concerns of justice. Now, one can easily imagine how such a dynamic among rulers would excite grievances in the wider population who saw their property heavily taxed or taken in order to enrich Benjaminites. Saul is paranoid and self-pitying. He thinks everyone's against him, conspiring against him. Rather than exercising charisma and natural authority as the true lover of the people, he sullenly berates those around him. Don't you love me, guys? His lack of a healthy form of authority means that he has to appeal to his servant's lower self-serving instincts. It also relates to his mistrustful and paranoid tendencies, which means that he depends very heavily upon the people of his own tribe, whose self-serving interests might most naturally align with his own. They're not truly people who love him. Their self-interests just align with his. We should also notice the ways that Saul has increasingly become fixated upon the kingdom as his personal power and prerogative. His speech to the Benjaminites reveals just how narrowly self-focused Saul has become. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Leaders may be subject to all sorts of unreasonable treatments, but leaders who are merely self-focused, self-pitying, and take everything personally are very dangerous. Saul has lost sight of the bigger picture. He now sees the nation as there to serve him, to love him, rather than of himself as a minister of God's love to the nation. We should again remember the significance of the shifting pronouns in Samuel's warning about about the king. The people wanted a king to fight their battles, but didn't appreciate that they would end up fighting their king's battles. 
Saul ordered the massacre of the priests of Nob immediately after this, and his military guard refused to comply. He had to turn to Doeg the Edomite to do the act. Saul was enacting the ban upon the servants of the Lord, but doing so by, a ha by the hand of an Edomite. Saul lost the ability to rule by godly authority grounded in love, and so his servants no longer obeyed his commands because they no longer loved him. He needed to initiate a reign of terror enacting the ban upon his enemies because he couldn't reign by other means. He was a man of fear and could only rule by fear. Now, this is not just something that we see in Saul. We see it in the story of David, too. In the story of David and Bathsheba, David, the lover, fails to stand with his people in the fight. He betrays them and becomes predatory. He takes, while his mighty man is out in war, he takes his man, mighty man's wife for himself. And in the process, he loses effective authority. His instructions subsequently get disobeyed. Things get miscommunicated. People's hearts can be alienated by a false lover with his false kisses, as we were thinking about in Mark's talk earlier. Absalom's false kisses of the people. The later life of David is one of political intrigue in his court, as David lost the hearts of many of his people and could no longer rule effectively because power and authority is grounded in love. As Peter argued at the beginning of the first talk in this conference, our notions of love are far too weak. Liberalism can often try to pass off indulgent indifference for love, producing self-loving individuals whose love is too weak to challenge others. They would sooner allow their neighbor to destroy themselves and others than lovingly to break their silence and call them back at cost of being offended. Christians concerned by such an approach can occasionally fall into the trap of implicitly accepting liberalism's understanding, arguing instead for the need for some supplement or alternative to love. But love is enough. Love is the root of true authority. And what we have is a failure of love, not love not being sufficient. Love is sufficient, but we need to have a biblical love. Liberalism has often celebrated a certain form of brotherly love, the fraternity of compatriots or comrades. However, it is much less attuned to the reality of lordly love, to love that, make cl that makes claims upon its objects. Liberalism's visions for parenting, for instance, can often lose sight of the claims that the love of parents can place upon their children, forgetting both filial and parental duties in its privileging of individual autonomy. Likewise, liberal views of marriage can forget the claims that love places upon its objects. As the apostle teaches, wives and husbands have authority, the authority of love upon each other's bodies. Not an authority of coercion, but one to be rendered in love and willing self-gift. As James observed in his talk yesterday, we come into the world with unchosen, given bonds and obligations. As persons who always already have a duty to love others, since we have been born into networks and a world of love. We come into the world as those who are loved loved by our creator, loved by our parents, in a society whose bonds are formed by love and trust and commitment and all the things that help 
us to live together in community. Love makes claims upon its objects, and as Dr. Lightheart highlighted, it can be threatening for this very reason. We have been loved, now we must respond. We don't have a choice. We must respond in gratitude or be deemed to be ingrates. Love is also not disinterested. When we are loved, love looks for a return. Love looks for communion. The scriptures have a vision of lordly love, most clearly seen in the claims that God places upon us by his love for us. As Moses addresses Israel in Deuteronomy, he reminds them of the Lord's electing love and the ways that they must live accordingly. Isaac Watts appreciated this in his great hymn as he wrote, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Love demands things of us. Love is not something that you can just enter into as an autonomous individual. It threatens your individuality. It constrains you. It compels you. The love of Christ compels us. This is not something that fits with liberalism's views of choice, autonomy, and its notions of freedom, which is not true freedom. The lordliness of love in Scripture can also be seen in things such as its prodigality, its liberality, its magnanimity, its leniency, its hospitality. In interpreting the parable of the Good Samaritan, we can do so in the spirit of the lawyer whose question is being answered. Who is the neighbor whom I am required to love? And perhaps this is to miss that in the very extravagance of the Samaritan's acts, we witness a love that in bountifully exceeding the bare requirements of duty is magnificent and lordly. This is what love can be. This is what it means to do something that goes beyond, that exceeds, that it is the fulfillment of the law. Because this is not something that the law in its mere demands of duty can lay upon us. This is the fulfillment of the inner moment by which the law is seen in its true light. Why, Jesus might be suggesting, would you satisfy yourself merely with your existing neighbor when you could aspire to form new neighbor relations on the highways and the byways? Like the Lord who compels in people from the highways and the byways to come to his wedding feast. Christian good deeds are not merely the petty morality of those preoccupied with their own status as righteous. The sort of um, moral sanitation, you don't want to become dirty by being involved in anything that might make you guilty. No, it's not that. It's a, right, it's a free and prodigal outflowing of the love that we have received ourselves. I think this is something that's captured in Luther's statement, to sin boldly. There's a sort of, there's a sort of um, liberal morality that's concerned with a sort of purity that shrinks back from bold action. It does not want to be caught up in the compromised structures of this world. And so the compromising structure of capitalism, whereby you're connected with things in the other side of the world that are unjust practices of labor, you want offsets for that. You want ways to shield yourself from any sort of um, obligation that might lay upon you. And when Luther says to sin boldly, it's to maybe give up that sort of morality and boldly enter out, you'll go out in love into the world 
and act with a boldness and a prodigal outflowing of love that is magnificent and lordly, that is not so fearful of contracting any sort of guilt by your action that you are afraid to do something that is good. Contrast the actions of the Levite and the priest who pass by on the other side. If you're wealthy enough, you can offset any duty, responsibility, or guilt. You can keep yourself morally clean through fair trade, organic, green, etc., consumption, absolved of any lingering duty that might trouble your individual autonomy. It might make you responsible to love your neighbor, some other party that you're bound up with as a result of your transac transactions. Christian morality, however, is not afraid to assume new du duties and to fall short of them to some extent because we're forgiven people. We are justified and so we are not so preoccupied with the slightest taint of sin that we would never expose ourselves to the risk of obligation. Christian love is then peculiarly apt to produce the loving acts by which societies and communities are formed. Our good deeds are not merely individual avoidance of naughtiness. They are civic acts, acts that are nat naturally outgoing, that want to reach and create new bonds, that are not afraid to become entangled with other people in ways that might make us obliged to them. Part of the reason why Christian love can be lordly is because we have been freed from fear and insecurity. The sort of lordly virtues that were once exclusive to rich and powerful pagans are opened up to all as we discover ourselves to be sons and daughters of the king. As we are secured in our standing by and with God, we need no longer live in fear of our enemies and their threats a truth that we declare in such hymns as a mighty fortress is our God. Read that carefully. Think about what you're singing. All the things that they can take from you. They can even take your children and your life and your wife. And yet, what is really the thing that matters remains to you. They cannot take that. As we are freed from the fear of our enemies, we are freed to love our enemies. Now, all of this is seen most fully in Christ. The rule of Christ is established in and by love. The authority of Christ is not the authority of some force. It's the authority of love and the way that that love moves people to act. It's the love of a king for his people and not just his people, his very enemies. And the love that is stirred in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is poured into them. God's love has been poured out into our hearts so that we respond freely in love to the love that has been shown to us, participating in that movement of love by the love of God in the Spirit. On the cross, Jesus defeats Satan and his kingdom and establishes his own kingdom by an act of love and specifically an act of love for his enemies. He gives himself for us. Now, it's important to reflect upon this, what it means for a kingdom to be found upon an act of love for enemies. A king who won't give himself for his people, who preys upon them, loses all authority with them. He has to compel them and force them, and even his own men won't work for him anymore because they don't love him. 
And so eventually his power fades. The kingdom of love of Christ endures because your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Christ's rule is in our hearts. And that doesn't mean his kingdom is not in the world. It means that his kingdom can be diffused throughout all of the world because it rules in the seat where power really needs to reside, in your heart. And if a king and if a ruler does not have your heart, he does not have authority. The people who have real authority have authority with their people, not just over their people. If you want to have authority in your relationships, it will be an authority exercised by and in love. This is one of the things that gets lost in so many discussions about marriage when people are thinking a man must exercise authority over his wife because she must submit to him. And yet the authority of the husband is found in his call to love his wife. That is how he will have authority with his wife by exercising love towards her. Jesus comes as the king, but he comes as the kingly bridegroom. In the book of John, we see this most clearly. He is introduced to us by the voice of the friend of the bridegroom, John the Baptist. Later on, we see his ministry begin at a wedding feast where he plays the part of the bridegroom in giving the wine. He meets with the woman at the well in a, in a scene that's redolent of all these Old Testament type scenes of wives met at wells. He's, he stands for the woman who's accused of adultery. He's the man also who has his feet anointed at Bethany. And the description of that, the nard filling the house with its scent, it's drawing our minds back to Song of Songs, chapter 1. The, while the king was on his couch, my nod gave forth its fragrance. Christ is the lover of the Song of Songs. And we see that, of course, in the scene with Mary Magdalene looking for her lover, the one that she has followed, and going and searching everywhere for him and eventually finding him in the garden. Christ comes from the chamber of the spiced tomb in the garden. It's the chamber in the garden filled with spices that is described in the song. Later on, we see in Revelation, Christ described in ways that remind us of the great wasifs of the Song of Song, the description of a lover from head to toe or, or toe to head. And in these descriptions, we're led up to the point where Christ culminates his ministry, which began at a wedding feast, at a wedding feast. And he takes his bride. And the end of the story is the story of a bringing together of a bride and bridegroom. And the note on which the book of Revelation ends is the same that the song ends on. The calling of the beloved to come, like the gazelle upon the mountains, come swiftly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That call of, of the bride to the bridegroom. Now, I want to conclude this with a number of areas of discussion and reflection relating to a Christian politics of love. Now, as I've been discussing a politics of love here, I want us to be very clear that politics is at its root about love. And all these other things that we talk about in terms of force must be built upon that foundation of love or they will fail. You cannot effectively exercise force if you don't have the love of the people around you, if you don't have a fundamental consent 
Polities are built around love. Fear, self-interests, or common enemies are insufficient. As Augustine recognized, people are united by a commonality of their loves. Christian faith centers and pursues such a positive vision, love at the heart. And if we're to pursue such a vision, we want our society to love Christ and to act out of that love in a way that is conducive to all the other goods that flow from that. There is a danger of a sort of Schmittian friend-enemy framework that arises when love fails, when there's a loss of a sense of the core reality of society being love, authority grounded in the love that you have between the governor and those that they govern. Christian faith seeks to bring to light and fuller expression the love that should animate a true society. Now, I think it's important to think about the way that the gospel works here. The gospel can say that the law ultimately is fulfilled in love. Ultimately, the law and its coercive sort of command is seen to be a loving thing. But throughout the gospel, what we have is not the rhetorical form of the commandment. If we just had the rhetorical form of the commandment dominating the epistles, they would be very short, a lot shorter than they are. What Paul generally does is seek to persuade and exhort and move people, to stir their hearts and their minds to recognize the goodness of Christ and to live according to his will. And what happens then is that the law is fulfilled by love, not by compulsion, not by mere command, not by mere taking the word for it, but being persuaded of the goodness of what's being set before you. And this is important for our presentation of Christ's rule to our people. The rhetoric of the gospel is addressed to and conducive of freedom and maturity in Christ. We want to address people as grown-up people in Christ, not as children who are bossed around, but as those who know the authority of Christ in the authorizing word of commission that they understand and understand to be good. And so with the psalmist, they can delight in the law of God and say how delightful it is to them that they meditate upon it all the day and that they are made wise and joyful by it. The telos of the law is thereby reveal, revealed. The law leads us into love, and love is the disclosure of the law. And so a good society is one in which you're seeking to bring people not into legalistic conformity to a certain outward form of behavior, but into a loving desire for that as good, that they want to follow the word of Christ because they love Christ and that they know that his word is good. And it's good for them. And it's something that stirs their hearts, that they want to sing about it. It's one of the reasons why we sing psalms. We sing psalms because the psalms are the fulfillment of the calling of Deuteronomy to meditate upon the law of God and to love the law of God. That's what it looks like. You sing about the law of God if you love it and rejoice in it. Christians in living in love are people of good order, desirous of and encouraging of good authority, even when it's absent. 
First Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And in submission to others, we are conducing to the exercise of good, loving authority. We're creating the conditions within which authority can exercise itself as it should be exercised. And so we're trying to be open to persuasion. We're trying to be open to being led. We want to find whatever is good in the commandments of those who lead us and to follow those while being prepared to stand when they are unfaithful. And in these situations, we are actually standing for the goodness of order, even in situations when leaders have abandoned it. And so the core of the society, the moral authority of the society, resides in love. And so if we live in loving order for authority, when leaders abandon that, moral authority will start to rely, reside with those who are in their loving conformity to authority and desire for good authority, are living lives of good order. And so we want to be those who have that authority that is characterized by love. Christians are called to and enabled to practice non-reciprocated love, love that does not receive love in return. We love those who do not love and even hate us. The defeat of the tyrannical serpent occurs in an act of loving self-gift for those in his thrall. Christ defeats the tyrant by loving his people, the people of the tyrant. He loves them so that the tyrant might be defeated. The place of enmity in politics here is not denied. There is enmity between the serpent and the woman and between their seed. But enmity is subverted. Love is a greater power than animosity. If people want to form a politics based upon enmity and friend-enemy relations, we want to form a politics grounded upon the power that can overcome that, the power that, in loving enemies, can claim authority, even in those areas where the ruler of those enemies, the tyrannical ruler who would destroy and seek their harm, is subverted because we love them and seek their good. Love for enemies enables rightful and good authority. Good rule requires love for the rules, for, the, for those who are ruled. And so if you love your enemies, you are standing in the position where you are fit to exercise authority throughout the whole of the society. Not just the position where you can stand for, like Saul, the Benjaminites who are rallying around you. Taking concern for the civic order and our love for rulers who are enemies is also important here. Think about the way that David is speaking about Saul as this romantic figure, even when Saul was clearly a tyrant. Is David just assembling the true reality of the situation? Or is David doing something different? David, in his approach to Saul, was a loving, submissive person who was being ruled. He fled from Saul. He did not submit himself to being killed by Saul, but wherever he could, he showed honor to Saul because Saul was the king. 
who is the one who has given the rightful rule over the people. And in claiming the duty of, his, of the men around him to love Saul and to serve um, and to honor the king, David was actually establishing the foundation for when he became king, that he would be exercising that place of authority in society that he had carved out by his love, by his willingness to pursue reconciliation, to give all the opportunities to Saul that Saul could ever have to turn around. He presented that space within which good authority could be exercised, not exercising his, um, not standing against Saul as his enemy, but wanting to be the loving servant of Saul. And Saul's non-reciprocation of that led to Saul's demise, but also led to David having the moral authority from which he could have the rule over all of Israel. Love forms, repairs, and extends society. The core practices of Christian politics should be things like peacemaking. Peacemaking is not just guarding some negative state of not war. It's actually extending bonds. It's being like the Samaritan on the road who is magnificently extending new relationships where they previously did not exist. It's reconciliation. It's treating every enemy as a potential brother. It's taking responsibility for the fabric of society when rulers are destroying it or when others are neglecting it and losing faith in it and engaging in a sort of anarchic behavior. Rulers and subjects are called to love each other, and both potentially non-reciprocally. Politics should be reconciliation, fostering love between people between whom there has been estrangement or a loss of love. And this can require a sort of unilateral love on both sides. So when Martin Luther speaks to the German peasants and the princes, He's calling both of them to their love. He's recalling the peasants to the fact that they need to maintain good order, to be those who love the good order of society, and so not engaging in anarchy and destruction. On the other hand, he's talking to the princes and saying that you need to love your people. That's your calling. And in that reminder, he's trying to recover and reconcile a divided people. It's like repairing a marriage. If you approach the reconciliation process, always waiting for the other party to make the first move, it's not going to happen. Love, as Christian love, means that we are always the ones who will take the initiative. There's an ability to take the initiative because we have been freed. And then, as Christians, we are now freed to decentralize political enmity. And this, is, I think, is something that maybe is easier in certain societies than in others. There is a place, for instance, in British society for the centrality of common bonds because the monarchy is supposed to unify the whole people above the conflict of politics. But the church represents Christ, who is the true unity in which all people and goods can be joined together. And the church should have moral authority at the center of society precisely because it is the place where above the conflict of partisan politics, the unity and the good of all can be represented. The king can desire and delight in and recognize all of his people. 
That is what Christ does. It's not just serving his particular tribe against others. Rather, we have a king in our midst who wants to make friends of all of his enemies, who gives himself, his very life, for those who hate him and those who would seek to destroy his people. And we are to be the same. And therein is found the authority of love. Often we can hear people speaking today of rewarding friends and punishing enemies. You don't really punish enemies. You defend yourselves against enemies. You maybe fight against enemies under certain conditions. But the true ruler punishes people under his rule, people who are part of his own body politic. The king, for instance, is one who rules his own body to maintain maintain good order within it. And when he disciplines, he corrects as a loving authority, as one who wants to reform that body, not to destroy that element within it. Now, in conclusion, I want us to think about what it means as we recover a sense of the lordly character of love and the authority of love. What does it mean when we say, Jesus loves you? In many ways, I would argue, it's just another mode of the statement, Jesus is Lord. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.